7. I'll be reading Hebrews chapter 7, verses 20 to 25. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, infallible, instructive, and beautiful word. Father, help us see the picture that you have painted here by the hand of the Hebrew writer. And help us love what we see and continue to draw us near to you through our intercessor, our high priest, your son, the Lord Jesus. Amen. So, verse 25, as I said a few weeks back, in the structure of what he's doing, is the climax. It's the main point. It's the mountain peak to which everything in chapter 7 was building up to. Verses 1 through 24 lead to the massive conclusion, the therefore of verse 25. Therefore, or consequently, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since or because he always lives to make intercession for them. Okay, this sentence of verse 25 is simple, it's clear. First, Christ is able to save to the uttermost, meaning thoroughly and unendingly. Secondly, to save who? Answer, those who were drawing near to God through Jesus. And then thirdly, how will he be accomplishing this? Answer, the last clause. Since or because he always lives. In order to make intercession for them. So, what we have 
is that because Jesus' high priestly ministry, that was verses 1 through 24, therefore he's able to save thoroughly, forever, to the uttermost. To understand verse 25, we need to be clear, first of all, on, and I will not assume this within evangelical Christianity, we need to be clear on what does that word save mean? I mean, it's a standard question, right? It's in our Christian culture. Uh, are you saved? I got saved. Is she saved? So what do we mean when we talk like that? What does it mean to be saved at its According to verse 25, if we are to be saved forever, then we need Christ Jesus to step into the gap between us and God. We need Him to intercede for us forever. We need Jesus to intercede between us and God. Doing what? He does pray. He prayed in his mortal life and he hasn't stopped, meaning he is an advocate with his Father for those who are drawing near. That's his high priestly work. So, back to save. The implication of that is that we need to be saved from God. Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him. Because... He always lives to make intercession for them. We need to be saved from the reality of Romans chapter 1 verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of human beings. This is simply at the core of what Christianity is, of what the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is. In John 3.36, he writes, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, We wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from 
the wrath to come. As sinful human beings, our biggest problem is God because of our sin. And this is what it means that the gospel, which means good news, is good news. We're being saved from just punishment. That may not be a given within a lot of today's evangelicalism. But biblically, it is utterly clear and foundational to what Jesus came to do. In Romans 5.9, Paul simply writes it this way. Since therefore we have now been justified, made right with God by Jesus' blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. Jesus came to save us forever from the wrath of God because He stands in the gap and intercedes for us forever with God. He never ceases to put Himself between us and God as, as our fellow human high priest representative. This eternally divine second person of the Holy Trinity became truly human forever in order to, as our representative, Adam was the first one, Jesus is the second one, where he, as our representative, would bear God's wrath against our sin. And also to do what Adam failed to do in his humanity live in perfect obedience, perfect human righteousness. And then, as our high priest, he represents us forever before the Holy of Holies, the presence of the divine nature of a Creator. If we don't understand what I've just said, that I have no idea how the book of Hebrews would make any sense. Inflation, we're all feeling it. Gas prices. Oh gosh, Tuesday's election. Who, who you're going to marry? All of those things are not even close to the biggest problem that every human being has. The major problem in the world is how can I be made acceptable to God so that we can escape His terrifying justice? 
in wrath at the judgment day. And to inherit all of his wonderful, amazing, inconceivable promises that he has made to those who draw near through Christ. See, in reality, nobody, I mean, if they actually knew, if they were in the know, got it, believed it, nobody will want to stand before their Creator on Judgment Day without a high priest who intercedes. And Jesus Christ is the appointed Savior, high priest. And so that's the gospel. And then, of course, the gospel says what? Do it. Turn. Be found in Christ. Or else, or else like what the writer says in chapter 10, verses 29 to 31. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God? And has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. And has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine. I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And that's where the entirety of all of chapter 7 of Hebrews has been leading. The biggest, most important answer to the greatest problem we all have the answer is a priesthood, a superior priesthood of Jesus. The reason there was the Levitical priesthood in the Old Testament was to paint the picture and to teach, to foreshadow Jesus Christ. It was to teach us about our sin. And God's holiness, where sin cannot come into His presence. It was to teach us about God's justice and His wrath that is coming. Aaron and his lineage, the high priests throughout the centuries who represented the people, could go and were to go behind the curtain into the Holy of Holies only one time of ye a year, and only they are. And not without death. The blood. The blood of, of, of the Lamb. For the sins of the people. And all of that was to paint the picture. To point to the one eternal, once for all, bloody death and sacrifice of God. The Son 
in his humanity who would then be the eternal, the unending, the forever and final high priest. So the reason for all of this talk about Melchizedek as a type of Christ in verses 1 through 24 that we have seen is because the eternal, superior, high priesthood of Jesus is the only hope for any human sinner. It's the only hope to be saved. So what I want to do, I want to, before we move on, I'm going to summarize verses 1 to 24. I'm going to, by paraphrasing, you see where we went, and see this is what filters in to the consequently of verse 25. Okay, so here's the picture. Here's my paraphrase. The writer said to us, God promised through David in Psalm 110 verse 4 that his son, Jesus, would be a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. In other words, Melchizedek was a type of Christ in that he was king of righteousness and king of peace. And he prefigured the eternal priesthood by not having beginning of days nor end of life. This Melchizedek, that, that is Christ, was much greater than Abraham to whom the promises were given. And much greater than the Old Testament Levitical priesthood of the Jewish people. Here's my argument. Because the law of Moses with the Levitical priesthood could not make people acceptable to God. That is, it could not remove their sin and give them the perfect righteousness that they needed. Therefore, there was need for another priest to arise to fulfill what the priesthood of Melchizedek pointed to. And what this means is that because the priesthood has changed with Jesus, the law of Moses has changed. The law and the Levitical priesthood, they're out. Christ, our high priest forever, is in. The law and the Levitical priesthood were weak and useless. Jesus Christ is the better hope through which we draw near to God. Jesus was made a priest with an oath in Psalm 110, verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You, Jesus, are a priest forever. And therefore, Jesus is the guarantor of the new covenant. Jesus, as our high priest, has guaranteed a much better covenant because those priests in the Old Testament all died and they had to be replaced. But Jesus has an unchangeable priesthood because he continues forever. Okay, now, that's where verse 25 comes in. Because of all that, 
this great verse. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So all of this stuff about the priesthood is because what we need to be saved from is the wrath of God. But here's the thing. God, the Father, ordains this or unending priesthood of His eternal Son to become truly human in order to save us, sinful creatures, from His wrath. It's His idea. It's His own Son that He sends who becomes the substitutionary sacrifice upon which the divine wrath is poured out and thus justice satisfied. And not only that, through him also that God's love for his son who is now not only divine, but forever human, that very love for Jesus would then become His love for every individual who would believe in Him. Okay. That's what it means to be saved. But now notice in the text, it points us not just to the once-for-all sacrifice that Christ made, which was Himself, happened in the past, but then it goes on to emphasize His ongoing, active work forever and ever. It says that Christ is able to save to the uttermost. Nothing is left about those people being unsaved. Goes on forever because, quote, he always lives to make intercession. For them. In other words, part of Christ saving us forever is his ongoing, unending intercession for us. Right? Right this very moment. Not just when we initially believed and came to faith in Christ in the past, but right now we are being saved by His eternal intercession in the Holy of Holies. In the presence of God, He always lives to make intercession for them. Now that, that word, intercession, is, is a word that, that meant to make a petition 
before the superior, go intercede on, on behalf of the people, or you, you go to the proconsul, or you go to the emperor. Go intercede. Be an advocate. And we saw him unpack this intercession at the very end of chapter 6. We have a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner be before us on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Christ Jesus is continually in the presence of God by virtue of his high priestly ministry on our behalf. He petitions. His petitions are something like this. And remember, this is the God, man, God, human. Father, I, your co-equal, eternal Son, represent these people. I represent them by my substitutionary sacrificial death. I paid the penalty against them in full, Father. And now, go on, Father. See them as you see my perfect humanity. He never stops and never will. Oh, to hear Jesus pray, advocating, interceding for those for whom he died. We can do it. Let's do it a little bit. You know it. In your Bible, all the editors, whatever Bible you have, at the very beginning of John 17, what, what do they say? Because it's correct. The high priestly prayer. So I'm just going to give you some touches of it without even verses. Just hear your high priest pray. Father, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world. But I'm praying for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. And I'm no longer in the world. But they're in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father. So keep them in your name, which you've given me so that they may be one, even as we, Father, are one. Sanctify them in the truth. Oh, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, 
I now, the night before my death, consecrate myself. That they also may be sanctified in truth. Oh, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given to me may be with me where I am in order to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Within the hour of those prayers, he looked at Peter and he said, you're going to deny that you even know me. But he said this to him too. But Peter, I have prayed for you so that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. He said, when? He didn't say if, because Jesus prayed. And his prayers are always answered exactly for what he asks. His prayer, his intercessory prayer guaranteed that Peter would repent and turn again and persevere to the end. We all are saved eternally by the unending prayers and advocacy of Jesus, our high priest. Just as I read just a little portion here, Romans 8, verses 33 to 35. Hear the words of Paul by the Holy Spirit and let it warm your hearts. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Okay, let's... You're supposed to feel, if you're a true Christian like you do, you're still remaining sin and brokenness, laziness, tiredness, drifting. But who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. And, and more, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. And here it is, here it is. Who indeed, truly is interceding for us.
who shall separate us from the love of Christ so that we're lost? Answer, no. No one can. Because Christ never ceases to intercede for the elect. John said it this way in 1 John 2, 1-2. But if any one, any of us, sin, we have an advocate with the Father, a go-between. His name is Jesus the Christ, the righteous one. He is the propitiation for our sins. So he prays for us. And his prayers are answered because he prays perfectly, always based on his propitiatory work on the cross. For us. So let's, let's think about the text. It says in verse 25 of Hebrews 7, He is able to save because He intercedes forever. He always lives to make intercession for them. What is it during this life now because this, when you get to heaven, you get raised from the dead when Jesus returns. His intercession will never stop. But right now, what is it that we need? And thus, we'll have it forever because he's always interceding. What is it that we need in order to be saved? I think the answer is clear right there in verse 25. He saves forever who answer those who draw near to God through Jesus okay that's what I needed back in 1981 when I was under the wrath of God, outside of His Son, and then I was dragged near. I needed that at my conversion in 1981. But I needed it in 1985, in 1993, in the year 2000. I need it today. I'll need it 20 years from now. I might be alive, Bob. Okay. We always need it. The participle here in the Greek of the, where we get draw near. In other words, the verbal idea is in the present tense, which in Greek, not only, of course, is present, but it's this Emphasis of present, continuous, ongoing action. 
So it does not say God's able to save those who once drew near to him, but who go on drawing near to God. So it seems that at least one of the things Jesus is praying for is that we continue to draw near to God. Which according to this verse, that's the evidence of those who are being saved. So sheep. Who Jesus is your shepherd. Believer. And not the world, but the ones he's praying for in, in John 17. Hear it. He ever lives right now to pray for you, his sheep, so that, like Peter, you'll make it. That is clearly in this writer's mind throughout. And you can see it clearly. You flip over a couple pages to chapter 13, verse 21, where he says that it is God who will equip you with everything good that you may do his will as it is God who is working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Get it? Through Jesus Christ. And remember in Jesus' high priestly prayer, John 17 in verse 3, this is what he said. First, for that father, you know, you've granted to me to give eternal life. And then he says, and this is eternal life. That they may know you. He doesn't mean merely know about. He means relational. Knowing. That they may know you. The only true God. And know Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And to know him is to draw near. And drawing near to God is one of those things, as he says in chapter 13, is pleasing in his sight. And it is God who is working this in us. And it says he's doing it through the high priest, through the intercessor, there is only one intermediary between God and the rest of mankind, Jesus Christ. And so all of that means at least that Jesus, he's purchased the grace for us of sanctification, 
of ongoing drawing near in the midst of the battle of our own sin in life. He prays and he asks the Father for it on the basis of his atoning death. It's huge. So now one more thing. It's just feel that but now let's put it in the context of the letter what's happening because it's the context of every one of our lives it's the context of our battle of sin and of unbelief and of growing cold one of the main themes of the letter is what as he keeps telling him Persevere. Persevere. You go on. Just look, this is what he's already said in the letter up to this point. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did in the wilderness in the rebellion. Let us then, with confidence, Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. So when the writer lets us know that we must not be hardened, that we must hear those commands and go on and continue to persevere, he is telling us that all who have truly drawn near will not fail. They won't fail ultimately to continue to draw near because it's not left up to Peter. I prayed for you, Peter. So, when you turn from that sin, Go ahead and strengthen my brothers. If you are in Christ, you are a Peter. You're not Judas. You're going to make it because it's Christ who saves. It's not yourself who saves. And one of the means is that at this very moment and tomorrow and next year and forever and ever, Christ is praying for you. For all whom the Father has given him. Boy, if that's not gasoline for us to let's go on.
Let's lift up the hands that got droopy. Let's go hard after God all the more. Let's be blood earnest to be filled with the influence of the Holy Spirit by daily meditating on the written word, but not merely intellectually, but prayerfully from the heart. We're in war, and the battle rages. And so, battle unbelief, which rises up, we to notice it, because it's like, oh, I'm disobeying your word here. I'm not trusting your promise. You battle it. For, for, just to give you two examples. So, anxiety. Whatever that is, whatever's causing it, whatever the issue is, but you know it's, it's an anxiety that's not a, a healthy, like, oh, okay, I should act here. It's an anxiety just gnawing at you as if God and your Savior Jesus Christ is not on the throne. So what do you do? You take His promises. For instance, so you memorize or you sit over on your couch and read or recite slowly Isaiah 41.10. Your guts are just tingling with anxiety. And you pray, Father, Thank you for such an advocate. Oh, Lord Jesus, you're present with me right here by the Spirit. Here's your word. You said, fear not, for I am with you, Joe. Be not dismayed, because I am your God. Father, you said right here. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Oh, you will always uphold me through Jesus. Or when you, if you ever get to the place of anxiousness that you're going to shipwreck your faith and fall away, from God, battle that anxiety and unbelief with the promise of Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. How do you know? Because he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God. Because he is always making intercession for me, for you. And so, let's think about Jesus's intercessory praying even right now as we're going to approach the Lord's table, the table of our high priest, remembering his high priestly 
sacrifice for our salvation. As Jesus said at the Last Supper, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Father, we thank you for the gift of your son. You didn't spare him. You delivered him up for us all. And Jesus, you willingly obeyed. And because you knew that you could not bypass this cup, You willingly went to lay yourself down as a bloody sacrifice, knowing you would take up your humanity in resurrection and be our advocate. Whoever lives to make intercession for us, oh, we love you, and together we look forward to feeling the bread in our mouth and the cup, remembering this sacrifice that purchased us the new covenant.